Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. Here we are again. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be here with you again. How are you, Ben? I'm doing well, John. How are you? I'm doing good. So we're moving on with our series on forgeries in the Bible, or as scholars call it, pseudopigrapha. Last time we talked about two of the purported letters from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians and Colossians. We're going to continue on with letters that claim to be written by the Apostle Paul, but this time we're going to talk about Second Thessalonians. And this one's pretty interesting, Ben. If you're interested in historical criticism like you and I are, or the sort of interesting tidbits of the Bible that you don't learn about in church, this is quite a fascinating book. Let me ask you this. When did people start questioning the authorship? Because, you know, growing up in my church, it was just obvious that the Apostle Paul wrote it and it was a genuine book. And I know throughout most of church history, people have no problem attributing it to Paul. When did that thinking start to change? So the first time that people really started to question whether this was a genuine letter of Paul was predictably in the 1700s around the Enlightenment, when people first started to take a critical look at biblical studies. So Second Thessalonians, my understanding is that it's pretty much unanimously considered to be a forgery among most scholars. I know there are some outliers, and we'll get to that. But am I right in saying that, when compared to Ephesians and Colossians, that many more people would put this in the camp of a forgery? Yeah, it's definitely less disputed than Colossians and Ephesians. It's more akin to the pastorals. Forty years ago, I don't know if it would have been as high of a percentage of people that would have questioned its authenticity, but I think that it's really moved a lot in the past few decades, because now I think it's much more widely held to be inauthentic. Just in preparing for this episode and reading some of the arguments, I thought they were very powerful, even more than Ephesians, Colossians. But why don't we start getting into it a little bit? Maybe if you could introduce us to what the book talks about and how it compares to 1 Thessalonians. Yeah, the similarity between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians has to do with the form of the letter. It follows really closely with the first letter's format, even closer in similarity than any other two Pauline letters. It has almost the same opening formula as the first letter. It's got a double thanksgiving. It's the only Pauline letters that have this, but it it, it resembles the first letter in, in that way. So the fact that it has almost an identical introduction, is that something that people look at to think, hmm, maybe this author took First Thessalonians and basically uh, carbon copied it just to begin forging this fake version? Because First Thessalonians was Paul's first letter. 
So it's the earliest letter that we have. So it's in the probably early 50s. But that's the earliest letter that we have. If that this is a genuine letter, then it's coming relatively soon after that first letter. If you were inclined to think that it's a genuine letter, then you would just say, oh, well, yeah, I'm, you know, Paul is dealing with the issues that he brought up in his first letter and he's rehashing them out. They, they were continued problems that happened in this church and he's addressing them again. But it does sort of make it suspect that they're so similar. Bart Ehrman brings up a rule is the similarities matter uh, to a certain extent, but what's really informative is, is the differences. So someone that is, for example, writing to try to convince you that he's Paul is going to sound like Paul. But Paul is probably not going to sound like not Paul. So if you find places where this person that is saying they're Paul sounds like they're not Paul, that's an indication that it probably is someone that's trying to weave together their theology and Paul's theology. And I have to reiterate, we said this a lot in the previous episode, but it's I think it's important to say that these forgeries exist. So whether or not Second Thessalonians is a forgery, we know that at the time that Second Thessalonians was written, there were people out there writing fake letters in the name of Peter, Paul, etc. So this is a practice that was done at the time, so the question now is, did any of these forgeries actually make it all the way into the canon of scripture that we now have? Last time we talked about stylistic and vocabulary differences. I wanted to point out one thing that I thought was really interesting. In the undisputed letters of Paul, when he's talking about grace, he uses the Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. However, when he's using the term in Second Thessalonians, he uses the term presbea. So that's just a little clue. Why is he all of a sudden using a different word for what seems to be the same meaning? And it's very possible it's because it's a different author. Yeah, and I think that there's a way to think about you have real Paul, and real Paul is dealing with contingent reality on the ground as he's doing his ministry, and his theology is evolving, but there are certain things that you see as fundamentals of of real Paul. And then you start to see slippage. As you get into Ephesians and Colossians, you have a move against Paul's teaching. And I think that you see that sort of here, too. You start to see things that are a little bit off. You You have to ask yourself, like, is this something that would just happen naturally? Is Paul just using a different word? Or is this a tweak of Paul's theology? And you hinted at it, but we're going to get a lot more into the teaching in Second Thessalonians and what, is, what seems to be different than what we know from, in the authentic letters of Paul. And then that can also give us a clue as to why the book was written. But sticking to some of the formulaic issues, like you said, it has this basically the same opening formula as First Thessalonians. And the whole book bears a very close resemblance to First Thessalonians. It's about half the length of First Thessalonians. But the similarity of the letters, it's greater than between any other two genuine letters of Paul. So it almost seems like somebody is using First Thessalonians as a template. Is it possible that the real Paul did that? Sure. But the fact that he hasn't done that elsewhere that we can see, it seems a little bit odd that he would reiterate a lot of what he said in his first letter, but then change the emphasis to an eschatological emphasis that he doesn't have in First Thessalonians. Yeah, that's totally right. The ending is very similar. It seems like whoever this was had a, a good working knowledge of First Thessalonians and was using it in order to create a, a letter that looked like a Pauline letter. Paul is sending another letter that's somewhat close in time to their first letter and repeating almost verbatim some of the same exaltations from his first letter, except in major ways, then all of a sudden he goes totally off the rails. And it also is funny because, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, but just to hint at it, that Paul sort of references another letter that they would have gotten in between first Thessalonians and this letter. Yeah, I mean, the thing that stands out to me is just that, you know, if I were to do something like this, if my project was to 
write a third Corinthians, a third letter in the name of Paul to the Corinthians, my first thought would be, okay, let me pull out first Corinthians and make an outline of it or copy it and then see how I can tweak it to uh, put my own message in there. That really seems like what could be going on here. And that's, it's not just me and Ben saying that. I mean, this is what many scholars see when they read Second Thessalonians. But why don't we get into some of the other arguments, Ben? The letter has much longer sentences, which that seems to be a calling card of um, pseudo-Pauline literature, that the sentence is much longer and more complex. It's actually more similar to Ephesians and Colossians in sentence length. That's one way that it's very different from First Thessalonians. It has a little bit more formality in its tone, which would lend itself to the idea that it's someone that doesn't necessarily know the people in this community, uh, but is pretending that they do know. It doesn't really reference anything in Paul's life that would be pertinent to the church in Thessalonica. It doesn't really have any personal details. It could be that Paul didn't have to rehash these because he had just written a letter, but he's rehashing a bunch of other stuff. If it is a forgery, which I think John and I both tend to believe that it is, it's actually done pretty well because the main proof are in the similarity to Paul's style, maybe to the point of being a little bit too similar, rehashing themes that would have made sense to the Corinthians, but maybe doing it in a, in a way that's a little bit suspect. And a couple other specific personal touches that we'll talk about in a minute. So, Ben, I really wanted to get your thoughts on this. We haven't talked about this. But in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, it says, This greeting is with my own hand, Paul. This is my mark in every letter. This is getting to the genuineness. Paul is saying, this is genuine because I'm, I'm making this with my own hand. We see this in other letters that claim to be written from Paul that now scholars don't think Paul actually wrote, where they're saying, hey, beware of forgeries, beware of people writing in my name. So I think that's a little bit of a clue also that whether or not you think Paul wrote Second Thessalonians, this is another indication that clearly there were people out there writing fake letters in the name of Paul. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like the first part of the statement, the, this is with my own hand, is proclamation of authenticity. Also, he's saying that this is my mark in every letter. It's like, well, what letters are you talking about? We know we have some Paul's of Paul's letter, or doesn't say that he marks it with his own hand. So it's not definitive proof of authenticity. It seems like we have other, we have another letter to Thessalonians that he doesn't say that he marks with his own hand. Why would a forger write marked with my own hand. Like, that's something that clearly shows a personal detail, but that's why it works in a forgery. It's there to, I mean, I think we talked about this in another episode. It's there to disguise you from seeing that it's a forgery. But also the fact that he says, because every letter, it assumes an era that people are really familiar with this library of Paul's letters, which in Paul's own day may not have been the case. You know, I, I don't know if Paul would have been seeing his own work that he was doing as something that would have the type of staying power that we now see it has. I mean, certainly there were other people writing letters all the time, and none of them, you know, have had the lasting impact that Paul's letters have. But by him saying, I do this in every letter, I think it's elevating that library of letters to a, le to a point that I don't think Paul necessarily would have had. That sort of goes with what I wanted to mention before. So this letter is addressed to the church in Thessalonica. But if it's a forgery, it's not actually going to that church. So I'm trying to think back to how this actually works in real time. It wouldn't be like you would write a letter to the Corinthians that was fake and then actually give it to the Corinthians. Like you weren't imitating Paul in that way. It was more like, here I have a letter from Paul that he wrote to this church. It, it's at the stage where Paul's letters are starting to be copied Well, it's and spread around, well, it's, right? Well, it's anachronistic. So, I mean, I think what happened was someone forged the letter and said, yeah, this, this dates back a few decades to when, to when Paul was alive and writing letters. I don't think it was written and then sent to a church. It was just written and yeah. then kind of circulated, you know, in with the others. And I, and I think, yeah, so exactly right. I don't think that it was actually 
dispatch to the the church in uh, uh, Thessalonica. The goal is to use this letter wherever you are to claim some sort of authority wherever you are. Right. Right. R- like, right. Exactly. Which is why in Second Thessalonians you have a lot less personal touch. So it's yeah. it, like there's much less of an emphasis on the actual people that are in that church and much more of an emphasis on what we'll get into later about the eschatology. Because I was thinking about that when it came to the, the letter to the Colossians or the Ephesians. I mean, these are later letters. So it's, Paul is dead by 65 or 68, maybe. There's good reasons to think that even if we don't believe the tradition that he's dead somewhere around that time. So you don't have a huge timeline. And, and by the time these forgeries are coming out, it's after the time of Paul. So it's not like you have to contend with a live Paul that's going to contradict you or people that were even in the churches that he's addressing these letters to. What you're doing is trying to create a letter that looks like a copy of a copy of a copy, but it's really just a letter that you wrote for 50 years later. Does that make sense? Yeah. My question is, is there early attestation to Second Thessalonians in the early church? One of the big issues with Ephesians was that we don't start hearing about Ephesians until later in the church development, meaning it, it probably didn't exist. But Second Thessalonians, I have a few late first century references to it. So I think that yeah, I think that's the earliest. I think Clement of Rome's first epistle to the Corinthians, written in the late first century, contains possible allusions to passages from Second Thessalonians, including the use of the letter in early Christian literature. And then, and then the next is Polycarp. It seems like there was probably a familiarity with the letter, meaning that it, if it is a forgery, it's an early forgery, as opposed to something like the pastorals, which definitely were later forgeries just going off the top of my head. It's probably like somewhat contemporaneous with like Ephesians and Colossians, right? I would somewhat I would think so. I mean, this is what I want to get into when we start talking about the eschatology because I see so many allusions to revelation with it. Yeah. I think it my my point there was a period in Christian history very early on where the original followers of Jesus were still living and were dying off. And I feel like that's when Paul was writing, the genuine Paul. After that period was over, you have that generation finally dying off and ending. And you come to the next much more violent apocalyptic strand of Christianity. You get the Apocalypse of John, also known as Revelation. And you get books like Second Thessalonians, which talks about the lawless one and what appears to be an Antichrist type figure. And this seems to be a later Christian development that really wouldn't have been around in the time of Paul. And But what do you think about that, Ben? I agree. Let me just throw a little complication and see what you think about it. I mean, So the thing that I worry about with saying something is something like the apocalyptic view that's expressed in Revelation is later. I mean, I think that's probably true, but... I think that I I always worry about sort of giving the impression that there's like this proto-orthodoxy that was lying around that things started diverging from, because there may have been an apocalyptic strain of people that were looking forward to like a violent reprisal against Rome that were part of like the very early Jesus movement as well. well may, so I, Yeah, maybe that's true, but we don't see that in the genuine letters of Paul is my point. I, this letter shows hints of the influence of the book of Daniel. This is obviously post-temple destruction. Paul is looking forward to a resurrection of the dead that's going to come in the lifetime of, of himself and other early followers of the Jesus movement. And this book is sort of written when those expectations start to have to be fudged a little bit. And remember, this apocalyptic viewpoint, you get a pretty clear picture of this in the Synoptic Gospels. And the Synoptics were written right around this period that we're talking about. The original followers of Jesus, some may have still been alive, but they were dying off. And there was almost, there was this big question mark of, wait a second, we, th- we th- had this expectation of the second coming happening while these people were still alive, and how are we going to deal with this? And then you have these apocalypses kind of in the vein of Daniel popping up and you see the mini apocalypse that you find in the synoptics and then revelation itself you know second thessalonians 
just kind of the zeitgeist of what was happening in Christianity around the time that the synoptics, Second Thessalonians, fits very nicely into that time period. The the late first century, you see the impact of the failed prophecy of the early movement. It really gets complicated trying to like disaggregate the historical Jesus from the later interpretations of him. And once you start looking at it, the original apocalyptic resurrection of the dead is Pauline Christianity, and the apocalyptic judgment against Rome is sort of a late first century gospel writers and also some of these pseudo-Pauline books and revelation. And then by the time you get to Peter, it's a whole different type of thing. But I, I think, though, that put aside the apocalyptic nature of it for a second, just the emphasis on false teachers, to watch out for false teachers. You find them in the pastorals, you find it in Second Thessalonians, and you find it in Revelation. Again, it's in that era where the church is now more diverse than it was. More people, there's probably more followers in it, and you have people saying all kinds of different things. It just fits in much better as a later development than something very early on. The, the angstiness against Rome only really makes sense when you have a movement that's big enough that they felt some sort of imperial pressure. You have the emperors that were declaring themselves divine are right around this time, Nero, Caligula, Domitian. There's a growing animosity and different ways that people deal with the animosity with Rome. Some of, some of the Gospels have a more muted stance towards Rome. They're drawing on this apocalyptic imagery from Daniel and trying to make sense of the window that they're trapped in before the end times come. Yeah, why don't you get into that, Ben? Talk a little bit about what pseudo-Paul talks about, the lawless one, and how that ties into all of this. The lawless one similar to the beast in Revelation, a Nero character playing with the idea that Nero is going to return from the dead. So that would date the book after 68, after Paul's life. This is the lasting legacy of Second Thessalonians because the prayers of thanksgiving and all of that other stuff are way less interesting than trying to fit together the prophecies for the end of the world. From a really practical perspective, this letter is serving the function of trying to make sense of why the end times had not come, why Jesus had not returned. The way that it makes sense of that is saying that it is going to be soon, it is going to be sudden, but no one knows when it's going to be, and a bunch of other stuff has to happen first. But that's the real function that it's trying to do. It's trying to push back that expectation for the apocalypse, and then... What happens is it gets mixed with other books that are doing the same thing at that time, that are serving the same function. The older, more expectant apocalyptic stuff in Paul, and everything just gets dragged together. So the man of lawlessness is obviously the Antichrist and the beast, and they're all the same person. And the original purpose gets lost, and this unhelpful legacy is all that's left over. And to me, the, the interesting thing is that the man of lawlessness or the restrainer you find in Second Thessalonians 2, 6 through 7, but it's not found in Paul's other writing, and that suggests kind of a distinctive eschatological framework, something that's unique that we've never seen from Paul before, but all of a sudden it shows up here. It's sort of like what Luke does with the expectations that are in Mark and Matthew. They're going to happen, but we're still in the birth pains, or, you know, we have to go through this first. And it's starting to to do what the later scriptures do, where they try to push back that expectation. When you focus on the prophecy of the eminent return of Jesus, that's super clear in Paul, you see how everything that's later on is just trying to deal with the fact that that hasn't happened and try to make sense of it. It's such a huge problem in these early texts. There's another interesting aspect when I was researching this that I found about the possible literary dependence on some other text around the same time. So some passages in Second Thessalonians show 
parallels with other early Christian apocalypse writing and Jewish text. One example is the concept of the man of lawlessness that we talked about, and that's in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. It's not found in Paul's undisputed letters, but it sounds a lot like apocalyptic and eschatological ideas that we find in other Jewish and Christian literature. The idea of a sinister figure who opposes God's truth, it is found in other Jewish apocalyptic texts. The notion of the restrainer, 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-7, some kind of mysterious figure or force that holds back the revelation of the man of lawlessness. This concept has parallels that we find in other apocalyptic Jewish texts, and its specific identification is a subject that scholars debate about. And the emphasis of an imminent day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians also resemble similar themes found in various Jewish apocalyptic writings of the Second Temple period which has led some scholars to argue the presence of these apocalyptic motifs suggests that the author of 2 Thessalonians may have drawn from or been influenced by a broader apocalyptic tradition potentially distinct from the theological outlook of the Apostle Paul. That sounds pretty right to me. This person had a different view than Paul um, when it came to figures that were either in power in Rome or false teachers in the church, this sort of apocalyptic end times uh, that was going to happen, and was able to encode his own views in a letter that he was passing off as being written by Paul. It was a great way to get some authority for your own writings in the ancient world. So it seems like there are some weird things going on in Second Thessalonians kind of a literary dependence on other texts that was, that predates the writing of Second Thessalonians, particularly early Christian apocalyptic writing and Jewish texts of the same period, the Second Temple period. So it really seems like the author may have been influenced or even drawn from those sources. And I just wanted to highlight one example. So the man of lawlessness, who we talked about in Second Thessalonians 2, 3, it's not found in Paul's undisputed letter. So this is this unique concept that just shows up in 2 Thessalonians. And this figure shares similarities with characters found in Jewish apocalyptic literature. For instance, in the book of First Enoch, which is a apocryphal Jewish text, there's the portrayal of, quote-unquote, the son of perdition or son of lawlessness. First Enoch 90, 24 through 27. For instance, the restrainer concept in Second Thessalonians has parallels in texts like the Jewish Sibylline oracles, where a restraining figure appears. The strong emphasis on the imminent day of the Lord in Second Thessalonians resembles themes found in Jewish apocalyptic writings such as First Enoch, where the day of the Lord and eschatological events are central. So these parallels suggest that the author of Second Thessalonians may have been influenced by the broader apocalyptic tradition of their time. Some scholars argue that the introduction of these elements is distinctive and raises questions about the source and context of 2 Thessalonians. So these themes and conceptual similarities between 2 Thessalonians and these other early apocalyptic texts led scholars to consider the possibility of literary dependence and the influence of these traditions on the letter's content. This is really interesting when we talk about First Enoch and other writings being so influential on the work, because remember, First Enoch is quoted in other canonical biblical texts, word for word. You find it in Second Peter, and you also find it in Jude. So obviously, Enoch was a popular book in Christian circles. We don't have Paul quoting it or in seemingly influenced by it in any of his genuine letters, but in this letter, all of a sudden, it shows up. The literary dependency, does he have the Book of Enoch there, or is it drawing on memories, drawing on knowledge and creativity, and how these stories passed in the ancient world? You don't but, know if he's sitting there with a copy of the Book of Enoch, or if just some of these concepts were popular concepts going around at the time that the influence can happen that way as well. Absolutely. even And, and you can see this when you look back with the hindsight of, of history, you say, oh, well, when Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquered the world, they they Hellenized the world, and all of a sudden, Greek conceptions of the afterlife or, you know, philosophy started influencing 
all the conquered area and vice versa an exchange and a pushback of ideas and it's easier to see when you're looking back hundreds of years later the book of enoch right on the periphery of the canonical scripture if just a few things went differently maybe it could have made it in a text that people have these ideas from but don't realize that they have ideas from it's totally plausible that someone could agree with paul and consider themselves a student of paul but also be holding on to some sort of belief based on uh, affirming the book of enoch or belief in this apocalyptic figure that's from the book of enoch even if the author doesn't necessarily affirm the whole book of enoch so it's it, it's very very interesting to think about how these different ideas were interrelating with one another. So in the discussion on Ephesians and Colossians, we pointed out things that are taught in Ephesians, Colossians that seem almost contradictory to the genuine letters of Paul. Some of the teaching that it's actually a very different message that Paul is saying in Ephesians that he is in, let's say, Romans. And we pointed that out on that on the episode. In 2 Thessalonians, Ben, do you see anything that's outright contradictory, or is it just more of new teachings that Paul hasn't said before, or just a different emphasis? The big contradiction of the letter is how he deals with the return of Christ. Paul is saying it could come any time, we'll be caught up in the air, don't worry about those that have fallen asleep, we're all going to be with Christ soon. And this Paul is basically saying, don't trust people that are telling you Jesus is coming immediately. A bunch of other stuff has to happen. And that seems pretty contradictory. It fits very well with my theory that time now has passed. People have been questioning, well, why hasn't the Lord returned yet? Because this original generation has now passed. And this is what we see in Second Peter, and even in the Gospel of John. This hints toward a later authorship in a more a developed point of the church where these questions have to be addressed, and this is one of the ways that it's being addressed. Paul is not really focused on the day-to-day organization. He's more focused on the impending, and his advice is live like the end times are coming. You know, it's better to remain as you are than to get married. It's better to, to have total equality amongst the believers. He's not trying to set up institutions of the church but then this paul seems to be a little bit more concerned with day-to-day stuff like uh making sure people are working hard enough and part of that is playing off the first letter i guess too but it just seems to me that paul in this letter is maybe a little bit more concerned with rigorous discipline and hunkering down for the long haul yeah the in the genuine letters of paul i i get the strong impression that Paul believes that the second coming was going to happen any day. And he doesn't put a big emphasis on the long-term Christian life going out generations into the future. I think one of the big stories of the New Testament and early church writings is that shift that we get from the earliest believers that thought this would happen any day within their lifetime to later believers that had to wrestle with those failed expectations. I think Second Thessalonians is just another chapter in that book telling that story all the way through. I did want to get to some quotes, Ben, what some scholars say about this very question of the authorship of Second Thessalonians. C.K. Barrett says, The language and thought of Second Thessalonians are unlike Paul's. And there is a strong case against its authenticity as a Pauline letter. J. Lewis Martin says... The arguments against the authenticity of Second Thessalonians are substantial. The eschatological concerns and the unique elements in this letter challenge its Pauline authorship. Abraham Malherb, the content and style of Second Thessalonians suggests that it may have been composed later and in a different context than Paul's other writing. Richard Longenecker, who thinks that Paul did write Second Thessalonians, but he acknowledges the debate and he says... Uh, the question of Pauline authorship of Second Thessalonians is not settled, and scholars continue to debate the issue considering differences in style and theology. David Aoun, A-U-N-E, says, 
The distinctive theological and apocalyptic elements in Second Thessalonians, along with the uncertainty about its historical and literary context, have led scholars to challenge its Pauline authorship. Yeah, part of the thing that makes it problematic is how close it follows First Thessalonians. So if you're convinced that it's genuine as your presupposition, then you're going to say, look, it's similar. That means it's genuine. But that there are some significant differences between uh, authentic Pauline theology. So I also have quotes from scholars that believe that Paul did write, and I want to get to that. But I want to say, I want to um, add this in, which I think is really important. And it has to do with a warning that we find in Second Thessalonians. This comes from Second Thessalonians 2.2. 2. And starts off, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. This is really fascinating because now you have the author of Second Thessalonians saying, there are fake letters in my name already out there and don't be fooled by them. Don't be alarmed by them. Of course, now, as a modern reader, reader, we're sitting here saying, well, how do I know which one is written by Paul or not? We don't have the original manuscripts. We have no signature on it. There's no fingerprints or DNA. All we can do is do kind of a literary analysis. And the church that I grew up in, their answer was, well, church tradition says that, that these are the ones that Paul wrote and these are the ones that Paul did not write. Uh, and the ones that Paul did not write are obviously not in the Bible. Um, but if you want to take a more scientific approach as what we're trying to do and what scholars do, they basically said, yes, Second Thessalonians itself was not written by Paul. Yeah, it's a great irony. Those are the two biggest points, I think, in the letter, the two big standouts. One is that it warns of fake letters going around in Paul's name and and couples that warning with also people that are telling you that the end is coming soon or the end has already come. So that could be a dig at actual Pauline theology as well. And then the part that we talked about before with the signing with his own hand. Um, So you have these touches of these attempts at authenticity. That's why I sort of like went on that tangent before about, so who would the actual recipients of this letter be? I mean, the, the actual recipients are not the original church. The other thing that I think that is interesting is he says not to be fooled by letters that are claiming that the end has already come, which sort of implies that they've already gotten a letter that says the end has already come in the name of Paul. So I'm wondering if this author knew of a letter that the Thessalonian church had gotten in the name of Paul that was claiming that, because where does this belief that the end had already come come from? So it creates the notion that there are letters out there in Paul's name that they knew that weren't written by Paul, but maybe even the Thessalonian church had gotten a letter. You have to put out of your mind the uh, Thessalonica church, because at this point, the purpose of these letters have nothing to do with that other than to gain authenticity by claiming it's a letter to that church. There were letters going around claiming all kinds of things in the name of Paul, but I don't think this happened during the lifetime of Paul. During the lifetime of Paul, he probably wasn't as widespread, he wasn't as well-known, he was writing to churches where he knew the individual people, and then over the years, over the decades, um, his fame began to spread, and his letters were copied and copied and copied. So when you find things like this, it makes a lot more sense that this is a later development. And I, and I think that's pretty consistent with scholarship. I don't think scholarships believe that during the lifetime of Paul, there was this massive distribution of his letters all over the place. It was, it was really a later development. Yeah, I think Raymond Brown says the same thing, too. It would be the only example we have of, the, of actual forgeries of a Jewish author in their lifetime going on, or like people impersonating authors. For lack of a better term, you need time for the fame of the individual to develop, or the notoriety. And I think the notoriety of Paul is something that developed, you know, over time. Like, he's obviously a gifted writer, and once the letters began to be spread and copied around, and this took time, this took years before we start seeing things like the pastoral epistles and these other forgeries coming on the market, if you will. So when you see that type of language about beware of people writing in my name, I really think that's 
an indication that this is late. I mean, I, I agree with you, actually. I think just the notion that, like, Paul's letters don't just immediately start to be distributed everywhere. Like, there has to be time. Our whole thesis is that part of the reason that the author puts this in the letter is to hide the fact that it is a forgery in the name of Paul. And I think that that's what people maybe don't realize about the ancient world is that if they you were skilled enough to make a forgery, then you were skilled enough to do a good job at it. And this is a well-done forgery. Yeah, I mean, in the same way we know that there's a lot of Christian history that has just been lost to time, a lot of letters and gospels that we just we have no access to. There's a hint here that there was another letter claiming to be in the name of Paul that talked about the day of the Lord already coming. I don't think that we can find something that could be referencing what we do have of Paul, but maybe I'm wrong. So I think it's talking about something else. I don't think it has anything to do with the church of Thessalonica. I think it just has to do with a letter that was going around and this person said, hey, I need to write in the name of Paul to counteract that. So the whole point of Second Thessalonians is to convince you that this is really Paul writing and dissuade you from this quote-unquote false teaching that this other letter talked about. So we're talking about a complicated period of Christian history where there were people vying for influence and really uh, competing for influence. And what better way to gain influence is to write a letter in the name of the Apostle Paul. And that seems to have been happening quite a bit. Second Thessalonians is, in fact, a forgery as well. The return of Christ was already a contentious issue very early on. And you have different answers. Ben, we've talked on the show and off-air a lot about preterism. And preterism is a belief that says the day of the Lord did already come. And then it, this seems like a direct contradiction to that. And these people, of course, hold you know Second Thessalonians as being authentic and inspired by God. I wonder how they deal with that, where he says, don't be fooled by these false teachers that say the day of the Lord has already come. The same way that you have a bunch of answers now that people have, preterists are one the early Jesus movement, that were struggling with these same issues and trying to figure them out and had different opinions. It wasn't like there was one answer was part of orthodoxy. Because I mentioned it before, I did quickly want to go through scholars that think it is authentic and give a quote from them, and then I'll let Ben respond. F.F. Bruce, who we've talked about on this show, says, the case for the authenticity of Second Thessalonians is strong. While there are differences in style and content compared to other Pauline letters, these variations can be attributed to the specific circumstances and purposes of the letter. Gordon Fee, while Second Thessalonians may have unique features, there is no compelling reason to doubt its Pauline authorship. The theological content aligns with Paul's other writings. Peter O'Brien, the arguments for Pauline authorship of Second Thessalonians are persuasive, while some differences exist, they can be explained by the specific issues addressed and the tone of the letter. And D.A. Carson says, The question of Pauline authorship is not decisively settled, but the evidence for authenticity is strong. The differences in style and content can be attributed to the letter's specific purpose. They're kind of all saying the same thing, that yes, there are differences, but if we knew the context and his exact purpose, then we would understand that. Uh, let me quickly respond to it and say that it's very possible, but I think you're left with a little bit of a schizophrenic Paul, which is very possible. Or maybe Paul is deceptive, and maybe Paul, over time, is kind of moving with the zeitgeist of the church itself. What was going around in the church was changing, and the belief systems were changing, the expectations were changing, and Paul was trying to twist himself into knots to align himself more with the current thinking. I've certainly seen that in my own church growing up, how themes and popular ideas would change culturally in the church, and then the pastor would adapt and change himself in a, in a deceptive way. That could be happening here. It's, it's possible. You still have a problem, even if you say that. Better explanation when you go through everything we've talked about on this episode is that it just simply wasn't Paul writing at all. I think the the most fundamental principle when I look at Paul is the eminent return of Christ. And this letter's purpose of trying to um, push that further back. And so I don't see that as Pauline. So I think uh, for, for my money, um, I believe it's a forgery. 
Okay, why don't we get into this edition of Bible Says What? Bible Says What? This is Bible Says What, the segment where we look at unusual or weird verses that we find in the Bible and discuss them and try to get to the bottom of it. So today we are going to stick with our 2 Thessalonians theme, and we're going to look at a couple verses, 2 Thessalonians 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. We could have almost made this a Bible versus Bible because this seems to contradict a lot of other things we find in the Bible about the nature of God and what God will do and won't do. But it has God being very deceptive, um, specifically sending powerful delusions, leading people to believe what is false. Other places in the Bible we have it's saying that God doesn't desire that any should fall away. But here we have God sending powerful delusions specifically so that they fall away, which it seems contradictory and it just seems kind of uh, crazy and it's not something that you often hear Christians talking about. So you have Satan doing some of the work, you have human wickedness doing some of the work, but then you also have God just in case that they were going to turn from their wicked ways, deluding them. It's right in the middle of this whole passage with the man of lawlessness. It's all a part of this cryptic, uh, apocalyptic stuff. It's a disturbing passage. I think God deluding people to disable them from turning to him and causing them to fall under the spell of the lawless one who's working with Satan is an image that doesn't sit well with the way we usually think about God. It's an interesting addition to the, the free will predestination conversation because you, you have this weird amalgamation here and you can understand if you go back and listen to our series on Bible blunders and a church divided, the whole premise of that series that we did was to talk about how the Bible isn't clear, uh, which is why the church is divided. So does God choose who is going to be saved and who is not going to be saved? Well, according to this, it doesn't really seem so because it says the people who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and, and so be saved. So implicit in that is this idea that they could have chosen to believe the truth. They could have chosen to, quote unquote, love the truth and be saved. But then you do have the Calvinist approach like, well, then God, like with Pharaoh, he hardens their heart or in this case, even worse, sends them a powerful delusion that leads them away to believe something that is false. And that is Calvinistic in a way, but it's the worst part of Calvin. So you have free will mixed in with the worst part of Calvin. Mix this with every other salvific formula we find in the Bible, and you can see why Christians throughout history are just totally confused about this question. I mean, that's a great point that you bring up, the epistemological claim. Like, you can't understand because you've been deluded. So God has made you blind. You don't see the truth because God has not revealed the truth to you. I think that that's totally contradictory to the way that... It's clear to me that people that claim to have the Holy Spirit do not have a better understanding of the Bible, for example, than people that maybe have no access to the Holy Spirit that actually is a hindrance sometimes to people's understanding what the Bible is actually saying. I just think that this false epistemological awakening where all of a sudden, you know, people talk about Gnosticism. This is claiming sort of a Gnosticism or an anti-Gnosticism. You can't know because God has made you not know. I find amusing this marketplace for magical signs that were going on during that time because there was like a real threat of this person is doing miracles over here or they're doing signs also. These people that are deceived by the working of Satan, they're deceived because of power, signs, lying wonders, and wicked deception. They're attracted to other people that are wonder workers in this ancient competition. Yeah, I think that, you know, what, what Christian history does with concepts like salvation is they systematize it. And we have now 
such a big emphasis put on things like Calvinism or Arminianism. And, you know, you have Westminster Confession and just book after book after book that puts this down into these formulas. And then when you actually read the Bible and read what it says, some of these verses come out and they're like, whoa, wait a second. This doesn't work with that system at all. And it's because it's impossible to work all of these verses into one easy to understand consistent system. Even with what you were saying, Ben, about how here you have God blinding people they can't even know the truth because God is like deluding them. But there's this is almost like a a weird hybrid two-part system here where it seems like it's saying there was a period of time where God was not blinding them, but they decided not to quote unquote love the truth. They refused to love the truth. Now, how does that fit in to Calvinism doesn't say anything about that. Calvinism says God before the beginning of time decided who he would call and who he would destroy, who would be reprobate, the vessels fit for destruction, and who would be called in the Lamb's Book of Life to go to heaven. And there's nothing anybody can do in and of themselves to change that. That's not what the author here is saying at all. I totally agree. Part of this verse is is clearly Calvinist, and part of this verse is clearly Arminian, and it's all intermixed just in this one little passage, let alone trying to make it jive with all the other different texts. I mean, you have... This is more Hegelian than Calvinistic. This weird sort of twist back and forth of, like you said, they refuse to love the truth, and because of that, they're being deceived by powerful signs and lying in wonders, and because of that, God is giving them a powerful delusion, and because of that, they're believing what is false, and they haven't believed the truth, so because of that, they take pleasure in unrighteousness and will be condemned. Who's the ultimate determinant in this equation? It's not totally clear who rejects who first. But it certainly doesn't resemble a clean Calvinist understanding or a clean Arminian uh, understanding. That's my ultimate point. The endeavor of systematizing the Bible into one easy-to-understand theology, you can understand why the church has been divided. I do recommend people go back and listen to that series. This is such a good example that we didn't use. We should just make a new episode specifically about like uh, Calvinism and break it down. You can probably tell that um, I grew up in a Calvinist church <laughs> that uh, I'm triggered by things like this. We've gone on for a long time today. This series is not over. We have a lot more to do. Uh, there's a lot of other pseudopigrapha that we find in the New <laughs> Testament. Um, but I did want to end the show with a quote. Um, this is from the great Bertrand Russell. I do not pretend to be able to prove that there is no God. I equally cannot prove that Satan is a fiction. The Christian God may exist, so may the gods of Olympus, or of ancient Egypt, or of Babylon. But no one of these hypotheses is more probable than any other. They lie outside the region of probable knowledge, and therefore there is no reason to consider any of them. Good night, Ben. Good night, John. The Skeptic's Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at skepticsproject. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com.